This is the John Oakley Show podcast. And away we go. Hour three. Great day for talk radio as the melt continues. What are we down to 10 degrees? So uh, we'll get down still above zero overnight and uh, into tomorrow. And then the freeze comes our way, certainly on Wednesday. Again, just imploring anybody who has the wherewithal to uh, try to remove from the catchment basins any snow or ice because uh, the city's superintendent in charge of the roads and expressways was explaining to us an hour one there could be flooding. And uh, when you've got that kind of flooding and we're going down below zero again as of Wednesday into Thursday, it could lead to, uh, well, slick conditions. And that's never pleasant. You don't want to go for a skate when you're not wearing your skates. That's always a problem. And, uh, you know, cars, black ice, that kind of thing. Just thought I'd throw that your way as another public service announcement here because who knows, the mean streets can be treacherous enough. You know, I was thinking about that earlier today, uh, just with this hearing into the Bruce MacArthur sentencing and uh, the situation as, you know, it played out. We all have a better sense for it now. Uh, It's horrific stuff. But, you know, I guess it's where there's, you know, I don't want to be overly uh, preachy here, but the the promiscuity of the hookup culture is such, and maybe there are people desperate enough to meet anybody under any circumstances that leaves them vulnerable and open to this kind of predation. Horrific, horrific stuff, as I say. Uh, but there were testimonials from family members, very heartrending stuff earlier today, and as the information was being tabled, uh, I guess for public consumption in that it's being reported as well. One of our veteran reporters, uh, Catherine McDonald at Global News, was saying, you know, uh, this stuff makes her sick. I just wonder sometimes, you know, if there's, I don't know, counseling required for having to endure these kinds of things in a courtroom. Our own Brianna Carnegie as well reporting on the latest information that we're learning about Bruce MacArthur and his macabre pastimes. We'll get to our lawyer friend Joseph Newberger in a moment on some of the particulars as they pertain to the law, but this is what Brianna Carnegie had to report from the hearing earlier today. Many of Bruce MacArthur's eight murders carried out a similar storyline. He often lured the men in for sex, strangled them with a rope, and then dressed their bodies in a fur coat before photographing them details that we learned today in courts. The police breakthrough in the case happened when Andrew Kinsman went missing in June of 2017. Kinsman was strangled with a rope later that day. His airway was also blocked by a ball of paper towel. The murder weapon, that rope, had a bar looped onto it, and when turning that bar, it would tighten around the victim's neck. Court learned MacArthur took photographs of his lifeless victims. Many were naked, had their heads shaved, and they were wearing or laying on a fur coat, some of them pictured with an unlit cigar in their mouths. All of this information came from MacArthur's computer. There were nine folders, eight of them nicknamed for the victims he murdered and one for a man named John. Court heard this was the man that had been handcuffed to MacArthur's bed when police raided his apartment. Two more days have been set aside for MacArthur's sentencing much of the time, allowing victims' families to address MacArthur directly with a statement. Sentencing happens later this week. Brianna Carnegie, Global News Radio. As I said, I forewarned it's horrific stuff. Perhaps I should have also uh, offered the caveat, you know, uh, you can maybe disengage here momentarily. I had no idea it was as graphic as it was or is, and that's the case because uh, these kinds of things... Sometimes, uh, you know, it just lends itself to, I guess, the purring in interest, or is it a need-to-know basis? Let's find out. Joseph Newberger is Global News Radio's law expert with Newberger & Partners. Joseph, good afternoon. 
Good afternoon, John. Somber times. Again. Yeah. Well, and you know, you're a criminal defense lawyer. I'm sure you've been uh, in court, you know, on cases where there are like horrific consequences and having to recount them. Uh, that has been the case, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've had my share of these, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how do you endure that? I mean, uh, does it some way you, you get a nerd to that or you build in resistance? How do you deal with that? You know, I'm, you know, I'm glad you asked that. I, I, the reality, it's, it's much like being a surgeon. You know, uh, unfortunately, there are situations where patients pass away or you have cases which are particularly horrific, and you have to try have balance in everything. So balance in life is important. My children... Uh, you know, sports activities, good relationships, and then you balance it. But sometimes there are cases which will stick in your mind and you need to sort of talk about it. What's great is, you know, I have a very uh, supportive and great law office here where we get to talk and we discuss things. And so you sort of emote with each other and you're able to work through it. But it does take its toll on you. And, you know, when you get to 26 years, 27 years, and you're dealing with some of this stuff on a regular basis, it does eat away with you sometimes. And I can only imagine how it is for the judge, uh, you know, for juries. It, it's an emotional, traumatic thing. And this case has a very significant macabre tone to it. And in Canada, we're very fortunate to be immune to some extent from this type of behavior because it's only recently that we've seen sort of a rise, what I'll call in serial killing and mass casualty events. And uh, we've had a very safe sort of conservative type of criminal activity in Canada. And it's now taking a turn a little bit more now for, for more of the macabre and horrific. And that is difficult for everybody. You know, uh, when you were talking about having a uh, good staff to go and recount these things, and uh, that's emotional support, obviously. Uh, anybody ever in your profession seek counseling? You know, and I'm oh. thinking of the more egregious cases where maybe children are the victims involved. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Law Society has an excellent program set up where there is an organization which deals with mental health issues. So it's part of the dues that we pay, and you can contact them for private uh, assessment and counseling and therapy. And it's, it's there because people, you know, lawyer, criminal lawyers and uh, other lawyers will struggle with a number of issues. So it is available, and it's very, very helpful. On this matter of recounting some of the details, the horrific stuff, uh, again, is that the public's right to know? Is it something they need to know, or is it just again, appealing to morbid curiosity? I think it's, you know, we have an open courtroom process. And when we decide to close courtroom to have, quote, you know, um, in-chambers discussions or, or to sort of seal facts, I think it does not serve the public well. I think it's important for transparency in the criminal justice system for it to remain a public forum. If it is difficult for people to listen to, then they have the choice not to listen to it and um, they can turn off of it. But I think it's important as a society, good or bad, because there are cases where the facts and acquittals and, and, and why certain sentences in cases may be lenient, it's important for all of the facts to be out there. And it's very hard for courts to pick and choose what the public should have access to. As macabre as it is and as difficult as it is, I think what is extremely important is maintaining the transparency and having public access as part of our democratic process. Again, with Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio's law expert with Newberger and Partners on the Bruce MacArthur sentencing hearing, started today and is expected to take two or three days. I guess what is that primarily for victim impact statements? Uh, why that yeah. timeline? Yeah. 
Yeah, in fact, I, I think this is going along uh, pretty efficiently. Justice McMahon runs a very efficient courtroom. This is a very difficult case from an emotional standpoint. And I think as I uh, spoke last week, I said it's important for the victims and their families to have a voice in this process. It is protected and enshrined in the Victims' Bill of Rights. But more importantly, it does factor into sentencing. And this will bring some closure. This is this is not a situation where people will walk away feeling better, but it will bring some closure. And having a voice in the process is extremely important for the victims who can't speak for themselves and also for their families. And when you say it's going to factor into the sentencing, uh, be more specific. How does that work? Well, in cases where there's not mandatory sentences, you know, a victim impact statement and how it has had a deleterious effect on a victim and a family does factor into sentencing because in certain instances, a judge can, look, they have an ability, it's a dynamic process to increase a sentence depending upon how it's impacted on someone. So it does factor in. It's not dispositive. It does not have a major impact on sentencing, but it does have an impact. And um, and so in a case like this, we're dealing with mandatory sentences anyway, so it won't necessarily factor in. Ultimately, the judge will make very appropriate comments about the the harm and trauma and loss experienced by the families, and that will be important for them to hear, and it will be reflected in the sentence. What I'm waiting to hear ultimately is how these sentences will stack up. Because as you know, under the law now, uh, life sentences can be consecutive. So I'm curious, I'm really curious to see if there was some deal made as to concurrent or consecutive sentences, and we'll see in that regard. And, and, and again, the victim impact statements may have, may have some uh, import in that respect. I'm getting the sense because this is a relatively new development with the consecutive sentences. Uh, and I think we talked last week of how there have been two prior cases where uh, Dylan Millard was one right. and the guy, I guess, who shot the three Mounties out there on the East Coast. Uh, he got three uh, consecutive 25-year sentences, I guess, which is life sentences. So he's not going right. to see parole for 75 years, which, you know, means uh, the rest of his naturals will be spent in jail. Uh the public appetite now for seeing this repeated since the precedent has become, let's say, somewhat well-established, uh, anything less than consecutive sentences might be uh, met with howls of outrage. Maybe. I, I think what the public has to realize, and, and we've seen some odd cases where parole's been granted a little early, and I know you and I have discussed this, but, but the majority where you have multiple victims in fairly horrific homicides the ability for somebody, even if they got a life sentence that ran concurrent, the ability to get parole is extremely thin. And then we also have the dangerous offender legislation. So if there are multiple homicides combined with other things, nothing prevented the Crown in the past from bringing a dangerous offender application and succeeding, and then the person would have an indeterminate sentence. So as much as the public might feel satiated, if I can put it that way, by having consecutive sentences like a 75 or 100-year sentence so that the chance for parole is impossible, it's beyond the individual's lifespan. The reality is in Canada, we've always had parole, if it's not eligible up till 25 years, there still has to be very compelling circumstances for somebody to get parole. And when it's more than one victim, exceptionally hard. Yeah, we've done away with the faint hope clause, haven't we? We have for multiple, uh, for multiple victims, yes. 
Okay, uh, I think Warren Allman brought that in back in the day, or he was a big proponent of that when he was yeah. justice minister uh, in the Trudeau government. Let me ask you finally, because, I mean, is there a takeaway where we've learned anything going forward uh, that has positive ramifications in this case? Because it's gotten messy in the sense, too, that one police officer, I guess, a yeah. desk sergeant, is now uh, before the police uh, tribunal on uh, a police act violation or a couple of them. Uh, the allegation being that in 2016, when MacArthur uh, came into the police station, on uh, somebody had, uh, I guess, come in there, a man saying he'd been assaulted sexually and uh, was complaining about it. MacArthur came in and said, no, no, this was all consensual, and he was let go. And I think there was a prior occasion in 2013 where the police had interviewed him as well. In other words, he might have been uh, freed to murder again if a greater due diligence and a responsibility to protect had been in play. Uh, I might have asked you this last week. I'm, I can't recall, but could this set up uh, a, a civil suit of sorts? It can. I, I think what's what's more important is to try and, and I don't want to prejudge what this officer has or has not done, because that's going to be before the tribunal and he has a right to a presumption of innocence. But let's assume for a moment that the the officer made a judgment call based on credibility and did not lay a charge. And and I'm actually a proponent for police officers having more discretion. I'm not a fan of mandatory 100% charge policies. I don't think when you're dealing with a serial killer who obviously has a high degree of psycho, psychopath, psychopathic traits would necessarily stop because they got charged with a sexual assault. They, MacArthur, had he been charged, would have received a bail, The case could have taken years to get through the system, and frankly, that might not have stopped him. But what I think is extremely important, just like I had gone through when I I sat through the Cornwall Public Inquiry years ago, is there's a learning process. As time goes on, police services and other agencies need to learn more about how to be efficient with respect to investigating missing persons, claims, how to look at complaints as they come in and how to fully investigate them and make appropriate decisions whether to lay charges or not. And we're living in an era where really we're at a sort of a a junction here. It's important to ensure that we protect any potential victim and uh, lay charges as appropriate, but also because we've seen that people can uh, be subject to uh, fabricated allegations. We need to find a balance. Um, So I'm hoping that through the inquiry, looking at how the Toronto Police Services dealt with the missing person investigations, and in particular, this complaint, which I would have imagined would have resulted, no matter what, in a sexual assault charge, as well as some other charges, that there will be some uh, benefit so that moving forward, investigations will be more robust, and uh, there will be a more of an integrated process to investigating to ensure that potential victims will not become victims. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There could be civil liability on the Toronto Police Service, especially when you look at this one isolated incident, if it bears out the way that we see it in the allegations in the Police Services Act case. Great info as always, Joe. Thanks so much for your time. And, uh, Sorry I took so long, John. No, no, it was great. I mean, I appreciate it. It's very thorough and uh, comprehensive, so uh, we're well served by that. Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a great show as usual. Take care, John. Thank you. Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio's law expert with Newberger and Partners. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.